Hello everyone and welcome to the European VC. We are here for the final podcast interview at Mark Pankalis' uh, apartment during Superventure. Yes. And we're here with uh, Philip von Knesenbeck from BFP and of course Mark and David, my dear co-founder and partner in crime. So thank you. Welcome to thank the Thank you. Show. Thanks for having me. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. So, I think we have to just, in recognition that we are in Berlin, to have a good time for, for, for Superventure, I think we should ask you, what did you do last night? What did you do yesterday? And what are you looking most forward to for this conference? Um, so, we had our own little event yesterday, which uh, was fun, very small group, went on quite long, so uh, I have some... My colleagues have been doing 7 a.m. podcasts. I wouldn't have been in good shape for that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, this is a great conference. Everyone is in town, so back-to-back uh, -back really. But uh, yeah, great to catch everyone up with everyone in person. So more of that. Uh, absolutely more of that. Philip, tell me the story about how you got into venture. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one, actually. So, uh, so my mother basically uh, was a publisher, um, started a publishing house back in the 80s. Ran it for 20 years, and then uh, when she uh, found out that none of her kids had any interest in taking it over, she uh, she sold it back in the early 2000s. Um, and that was sort of you know very nice firm, which still exists, but very old-fashioned, right? Printed paper, coffee table books, nothing digital of any kind. So in sort of the mid 2000s, once I had finished my studies, I had actually worked in banking, but together with my siblings, we uh, sort of you know created a concept to digitize many of the processes. Uh, in, in, in publishing and pitched that, but obviously my mom would have said, yes, great, but uh, unfortunately she wasn't in charge anymore. So to the, uh, to the uh, management of the group that bought her publishing uh, house and, you know, the guy is brilliant, you know, built a fantastic sort of uh, empire in the publishing world, French guy, super cool guy, but, you know, he didn't think the internet was a thing. So he said no. <clears throat> and that led us to basically uh, start our own Basic mistake. Yeah, basic mistake. <laughs> uh, God bless him. Uh, but it's, it basically led to us, uh, and by us it was actually my brother and my sister in that case, and I was moonlighting a little bit uh, next to my banking job. Uh, basically created a digital publishing company. It's a software as a service, automating much of the processes like you know, production, distribution, royalty, you know, payments, and that's a really a sort of uh, yeah, good software solution, and yeah. it's been sold to hundreds of publishing houses. So we didn't actually raise capital at the time because we sort of bootstrapped it. But um, yeah, that sort of brought me into venture and then... Started. And how does one from that think, fund of fund, I think I should do a fund of yeah, fund. Yeah, so I went way up from the startup <laughs> to the fund of fund. Um, yeah, that's something so... Uh, you, you, you realized how wrong it could have gone how many times. So you thought, okay, I'm not going to just do a venture fund, which will only give me 30 of those crazy companies. I'm going to do, do a fund of fund exactly, and I'm going to get yeah. 300 of those. But, well, that actually was a sort of a logical conclusion in a way, because I sort of saw, I mean, you know, as I, as I said, I was a bit on the sidelines, but I yeah. saw how tough it is. And I have huge respect for any founder going through that journey, how tough it is to build a business from nothing. 
the chances, unfortunately, of any individual sort of company becoming a unicorn are pretty slim, as we all know. So um, I very early understood the need to diversify, and then obviously uh, you can go to the fund level or the fund of funds level where you have really broad diversification. But yet, you know, it's it's an interesting asset class because you can obviously have sort of high multiples on individual investments. So our approach with BFP is to basically yes, we diversify across many different things, geographies, verticals, etc. But compared to other fund of funds, we run a very very concentrated portfolio. So it gives us sufficient downside protection, but if we have that, you know, outlier or a few yeah. of them, it sort of really, uh, you know, turns the needle on the portfolio level uh, returns. So how concentrated is the portfolio, or is it going to be? Did you change your strategy over the generations of fund of funds you've been raising? No, not really. <clears throat> so we figured out that with 10 to 12 core relationships, which is around 80% of the capital, we'd have su uh, sufficient diversification. Also across verticals, that's quite deliberate uh, how we how we basically manage that. So, for instance, our biggest vertical is Enterprise SaaS, which is a huge vertical. But that only accounts for like 15% of our underlying uh, basically investments. Yeah. And every other major category is less than that. So we make sure we're very diversified there. We invest in the US, we invest in Europe, we invest in Israel, we invest in, uh, in Asia. And uh, also we make sure we have temporal diversification. So, Where's the 10 to 12 coming from? I'm asking particularly because mm -hmm. we've been speaking to lots of fund of funds mm -hmm. lately. Mm -hmm. We have lots of numbers. Anywhere between up to 15 is the magic point where your portfolio starts to perform not as good as you would like it to perform. Others say, no, it's sturdy. And we have indexed fund of funds, which are evergreen, which say, no, it's anywhere between 40 and 60. Where's mm -hmm. the 10 to 12 coming from? Yeah, so 15 is, an, is a number coming from some sort of portfolio diversification theory. I mean, I studied, I did a master's in finance in London. That seemed to be, I don't know where that comes from, but the magic number for perfect diversification. Figured out we sort of, you know, take a little bit more risk because in venture capital you do need to take risk. Yeah. Otherwise that's not going to work. So we just dialed it down to 10 to 12. And I said with those other factors, diversification across verticals, geographies, vintages, we figured. And, you know, it was always a good story yeah. to tell that I could never prove it up until 2022. And <laughs> luckily uh, our portfolio has been very stable uh, throughout this massive, massive correction. So that sort of proved the point on the downside protection. Do you have a like fund returner um, like thinking when you invest into a fund of fund? Does every fund has to have the potential to return your fund of fund or a fraction of it? And if so, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, that would sort of 10 names that would basically be a 10x on a fund, which uh, I mean, it's nice if you can get it, but uh, I think it's not realistic to sort of underwrite I'm asking because that's what, what I heard from different fund yeah. funds that they go after that, especially well, with well, the you can. Yeah, you, I mean, you can. Uh, maybe you're even lucky, but we underwrite to a sort of three to five X basically outcome. So we basically need a quarter of our funds to yep. sort of right. to hit, hit their target. Yeah. yeah exactly. And I think that's also the most normal approach that we hear. I do want to hear that your pivotal moment because I think you've gone through the, the, the crisis and, and, and seen that. So I think that there's something there that we should definitely dive into. But we dove into, into the, the, the thesis and everything. So I, I think we should just hear a bit. Your, when you're saying you're a global fund, what does that look like in terms of how much is Europe, how much? Because 10 to 12 relationships, well, is Europe then only three funds for you? Um, we have a few more. So, A, we have obviously run our third fund now, just about to launch our fourth, fourth fund. And, you know, with sort of the cycles of the funds raising, not every one of our core relationships is, is in all of those funds. But, yeah, sort of the re-upping question becomes tougher um, over time because sort of the good ones you want to back. Obviously, in the first one, all names um, are fresh. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the geographical allocation, we're 
I wouldn't say US heavy, we're basically matching global flows in terms yeah. of US, yeah. so US is just under half basically yeah. of our location. Yeah. Europe is like uh, a quarter and the rest is between Israel and, and Asia basically. You often see fund of funds or, and, and LPs that, no, especially fund of funds that, that meet a lot of emerging managers, mm -hmm. but they never really, you know, the odds that they're ever going to invest in emerging managers is very, very slim. And I'm curious, it's, it's a question that I often ask Jeroen about from, from Pace Notes. Why, why do you even spend the time, right? Because you are, in the end, Baldwin, HV. You are those big names. That's what we all know you for. But I also know a lot of emerging managers that have said they've met with you. And I'm like, why do you even take the time? <laughs> because it, it and I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for us, we're exclusively emerging managers. The only uh, name that might sort of stick out is Early Bird. But that was actually uh, the Heilemann brothers, whose fund we backed, and then they merged with Early Bird. So that's how that happened, which is a very happy relationship. But um, it's not a typical sort of uh, case. Other than that, every fund that we invested to is a fund one, two, or three. We've had a lot of funds where we were in the first fund, in the first close. Um, so we're high conviction investors. Um, yeah, so that, is, that is, early, that uh, is interesting. I, ac yeah. I actually didn't know that. And, and, and sorry to the audience for me not having done my homework there. But that surprises me. And I had put you in the other bucket because I was thinking, you need to be deploying large tickets into these funds. If, you know, since you only have 10 to 12 relationships out of pretty big fund. And most people that do emerging would then say, going to do smaller tickets, more, more wide. Yeah, so out of our fund three, which was a 50 million vehicle, um, we've basically got two ticket sizes. One is sort of a three million core ticket. Yeah. So we've got 10 to 12 of those. It's like, yeah. you know, 32 uh, million, 33 million. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, pilot tickets, which is 1 million. Yeah. And we've done, you know, a bunch of those, also 8 to 10. Yeah. And then we also carved out 20% of the fund for direct investments. So, so the fund, fund part is only uh, 40 million. So the ticket size arrives with that. And the uh, next vehicle is going to be a larger one. Um, so the ticket uh, size are going to grow accordingly. Yeah. From the three buckets, which performed best? Looking at the numbers as we speak. Of the uh, pilot tickets, a lot of them performed very well. <laughs> but blended across like all the tickets you have done, like pilot and core or cornerstone plus. Yeah, I mean, I have to say there's something about first-time funds. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit wary about the overall statistic because there's obviously a survivorship bias. Yeah. Yeah. But just judging from our portfolio, a lot of the pilots have done very, very well. Uh, do you have any, because I think that this is what many in our audience will be thinking, hmm, what's the rationale behind that? Why, why do you think, because that is, of course, a very strong argument for an emerging manager to be able to say, well, if BFP thinks about it like this. So I think many in our audience would be able to drop that thought uh, <laughs> in conversations with different people. And, and could, you, could you enlighten me a bit so there? Why what? is it? <clears throat> well, it's not statistically uh, significant. significant. <clears throat> it's just based on our observations. Maybe it was just luck. But um, no, I mean, there's a number of things, right? I mean, uh, you know, if someone does sort of very well over sort of several vintages, you know, and sort of success uh, kicks in, um, yeah. You sort of, you know, you get both types, but you, know, you become yeah. a little bit comfortable. So I would say first time fund managers try a lot harder. Yeah. Um, there's also better alignment of interest, right? Once you've got a certain asset base and then you see the management fees rolling in, you know, that also can get comfortable from a certain size. Uh, but these, you know, emerging managers, funds are typically sub 100 million or they're often sub 50 million. You know, you really need to, that performance to make any money out of it. And everyone, I mean, I also have huge expect for emerging, yeah. emerging managers because that is also, I mean, the 
first close of the first fund for most is the hardest thing they've, yeah. they've ever done. Yeah. Um, but it does get easier. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> once you've got that going, yeah, but I mean, you make real sacrifices. You work like a dog. <laughs> yeah. um, it's hard. It's a slog. Do you have any like um, cap or virtual limitation where you said that's the maximum fund size, which plays into your A strategy and B, your expectation in terms of returns for that fund? Is it 50 million? Is it 100 million? We're talking about yeah, one or It's secondary? actually 200. Um, having right. said that, a lot of the funds, so we've got some funds at 200 and for some funds it makes sense to be at 200. Yeah. Depends always on the strategy. I mean, right. you're not saying uh, fund size is your strategy. That's, that's what matters, but it also matters uh, on the region. If you, have, if you are in a region where there's maybe less sort of following fun, follow on funding, early growth, growth, uh, then you need to be in control of your destiny or the destiny of your companies for a little bit longer by sort of feeding them a bit more cash in a market that's highly competitive like the US. Um, I think smaller funds um, are beautiful. So most of our funds are between say 50 and 120 ish, yeah. which I think for sort of seed funds. Do you as well in invest into solo uh, GPs? Yes, we've got a bunch of solo GPs. Right. Any preference between solo or? Multiple GPs? Yeah, I mean, that's cons? maybe a little bit of <coughs> or controversial. Biasness. A lot of people, my peers basically argue about what if a solo GP you know, becomes incapac incapacitated, uh, what happens then. But on the other hand, you have partnership risk. And uh, touch wood, I never had a solo GP <laughs> incapacitated, but I had uh, several partnerships break up. Right. So that's the other risk. And then things can become really ugly and really dysfunctional. And yeah. you don't want that either. So. I mean, obviously, we've got a portfolio, so we can balance risk between the two sort of approaches. But uh, no, we, are, we like uh, sort of GPs. Any way to mitigate the risk looking at an emergent fund yeah. saying, this is the treats we'd love to see in order to say we feel comfortable with that team that they will survive the first, second, third generation? Yeah, as, as, a, as a partnership. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, I mean, you know, one of the questions I ask, how, how can you sort of prove that you're still going to be working together in 10 yeah. years? And obviously, it helps to have a history here. Um, having gone through some ups and downs together, but then it's also things like, you know, how the economics split. And then, you know, you always have to have the discussion. And, you know, there's no right or wrong. It can work either way. But um, I think the easiest model is just sort of if you have two partners or three partners, just split it down the middle, equal partnership. Yeah. Because ultimately, you never know where the value is going to be generated. You know, it could be one deal that you find per chance, one intro you make that sort of generates huge value, and you don't want to be fighting over it afterwards. So I really like sort of equal partnership models. I was about to jump in before with, uh, with a comment, which was that, that it's funny that in every other aspect of, of life, you kind of like default to saying, well, what's the worst thing that, you can, ha that can happen? I won't fall, up, I won't fall, fall, fall around dead, right? <laughs> and it's like in, in, in VC, for some reason, that's something that people are really afraid of if you're a solo GP. Don't, you know, there's huge solo GP risk. Yeah, I mean, you can. So if A, if you are a solo GP, you need a backup. So what happens to who manages, who takes care of your portfolio if, you know, something happens. But the same is also very often true with uh, sort of GP partnerships. To be honest, sometimes, you know, you're really underwriting the one partner and the other one might be very complementary. Yeah may have less investment experience or something like that. And then if something happens to the one partner you're underwriting. Yeah, what do you do? Yeah. You know, you can be in a very similar uh, situation. And also, obviously, this would always trigger a key man clause. Yeah. So you have your existing portfolio, no new investments get made. Yeah. Hopefully, a lot of those portfolio companies will have already had follow-on funding. There are other investors at the table. So the company is not going to fall off a cliff just because that yeah. sort of GP is not able to perform his or her job. So 
you know, it's, uh, it's complicated. Yeah, definitely. So now let's get into something where I would say when you walked in today and we spoke a bit about the market, you exuded calmness. And it's, it, this ties us into the, uh, the, the, the pivotal moment in your career. So tell us a the pivotal moment in your career that has kind of formed you as an investor. Yeah, well, it actually ties in very well with this question. Um, so as I said, I used to be a, a banker. I worked for a, for a European bank that leveraged finance in London and Hong Kong for nine years. Um, and so I've basically been through the uh, financial crisis. The interesting thing is some people who weren't in finance hardly noticed the financial crisis. But I remember if you were in banking, it was really doomsday. It was like the world was, I don't know if you've seen the, um, the <laughs> film, uh, uh, basically Wall Street 2. Yeah, yeah. That's what it felt like, like literally the world is going down. And what I learned, so I was obviously in credit at the time, um, sort of, you know, basically LBOs funding and liquidity just dried out overnight. So it can happen literally like this. Something happens tomorrow. There's no way of refinancing yourself, uh, no way of getting any new capital. It's just gone. That's how the financial system works. And uh, yeah, I don't want to say liquidity is more important than your mother. <laughs> Sorry, Marvin, it's not, but it's pretty much, uh, pretty much up there. And you see it now in this crisis, right? I mean, what you need to do if you're a company right now is extend your runway as long as you can. Liquidity is everything. Um, so that's something I learned there. And, you know, it ties in with financial markets. So that was sort of triggered by something else. But if you look at the dot-com crash, what triggered it? Steeply rising interest rates. What, uh, what triggered the crash early, early 2020? Steeply rising uh, interest rates. So, and that again, obviously, uh, controls global liquidity and global liquidity drives, in my opinion, all asset classes up or down. And I think that we should just touch on the topic that led me to saying that you, 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 you exuded calmness because we've spoken a lot about it today with, I think, everyone that, that we've, we've been talking to today. Of course, the market today and, and, and use that something before, which was something along the lines that you, we're 18 months in. I think I think we are where we are starting to see that it's going to be better now. I mean, that's sort of historically, if you look at corrections, it's not the first correction, right? Um, or crash even. Uh, they typically last 18 to 24 months and, you know, then sort of pull out of the, uh, of the slump. You know, I don't want to get too deeply uh, into sort of the macroeconomics of it, but you can obviously see Stock markets are going up again, uh, interest, uh, inflation is coming down, so that leads to the assumption that interest rates will peak at some stage, you know, and then things will start to stabilize. And also, there's budgets, right? So most sort of institutional investors have budgets. So it's actually the exact opposite than in 2022. In 2022, which was obviously coming out of, out of the madness, there's a lot of funds came and re opt sooner, raising larger funds. It was Q4, 21, Q1, 22. So a lot of sort of institutional investors had basically blown through their budgets in the first half of 2022. That's why in the second half of 2022, it was dry as the desert. That was just, it was just worst fundraising environment I've seen. <clears throat> now 2023, first quarter, again, pretty much nothing in terms of fundraising for most. Um, and the reason is, I think, because people were waiting for Q4 results. And I sort of have full sympathy for that sort of mark to marking illiquid assets it's extremely hard. And I had a lot of conversations with the GPs in our portfolio as to how to do it. And it is insanely hard, right? If you, if you have a company which is arguably overvalued, but you're like 
it's still sitting at cost. You're sort of right up there in the liquidation stack. It has five years of runway. Are you going to lose money? Probably not, right? So it is hard. And you know, people have been writing things up or down in the sort of the inter-year quarters, so Q1, Q2, Q3, Q3. But Q4 was the one where they really sort of had to deal with auditors. <laughs> Always a pleasant uh, conversation to have. Nothing against auditors. Uh, very va valuable to what we do. But you know, that's when people needed to have a hard look and justify it, not only to the LPs, but also, also auditors, et cetera. And I think sort of with that, and there have been heavy markdowns uh, on the whole in Q4, more so than in the previous quarters, people sort of took more confidence in sort of the repricing having sort of flown through to, you know, obviously it happened instantaneously in liquid markets, very liquid markets like venture capital. I think it gave a lot of people confidence. And now we're in May, and you know, people are sort of, you know, testing the market again, but those budgets are largely still there. So, and they need to be deployed in the second half of 2023. So that's why I'm a bit more confident about the fundraising. Uh, fundraising is there program. a LP? Uh, just imagine you would raise your f emergent VC fund uh, and you do it for the very first time. Is there an LP class, which is the low hanging fruit to raise from? Going from high nets to family office, multifamily office, fund of funds, institutional money. How would you structure it? How would you do your race as we speak looking mm -hmm. at the money? A good question. I think family office is going to be the first one back in because a lot of them are sitting on a lot of cash, but yep. they are hoarding, hoarding it because of uncertainty, right? So they just want to sit on it for a while. Obviously, now they're getting, uh, uh, getting sort of positive interest rates on it, again, on it again, although real interest rates are still negative with the high inflation. Um, but a lot of them, you know, I think it's family offices, it's very sentiment driven, right? So as soon as the overall sentiment turns, and it can turn very quickly, driven by a lot of uh, external factors, they'll be ready to go and they're yeah. flexible. So I think they'll be the first ones to come back. Fund of funds, I mean, I'm going to be honest, a lot of fund of funds are struggling too to raise cash. So it depends where they are on the fundraising cycle. And yeah, so I think with sort of the larger institutional investors, there are still budgets to be spent. So they will, will be there. I think a lot of it will still go into more existing relationships, because obviously new relationships also add a, add a new layer of risk. But uh, I mean, as you said earlier, I am quite positive. I don't have a crystal ball, but I think uh, things are going to reset sooner than yeah. many people. Than many, many, many believe and say. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now to our take a stance round. Take a And I would love to ask you to take a stance on the following quote. U.S. venture is light years ahead of European venture. And for that reason, any LP is better off investing their dollars there. Don't agree with that. I, uh, I believe in sort of, uh, you know, sort of globally distributed talent and opportunity. It's feeding back to the there's no free lunch. So obviously the U.S. is a market you cannot ignore. It's, you know, over half of the asset class, which actually shrunk a lot. So years ago was maybe seven eight hundred billion now it's just 450 billion globally which is shockingly little and us is basically half of that so if you, you know, invest in sort of just for financial returns and invest in venture capital you cannot ignore the us in fact you know what we do i think you should sort of match the flows but um you know there's huge opportunity everywhere i think you know europe is, is a big place for this but also you know israel is a country that's really punching above its weight as plenty of opportunity in Asia so yeah I think just yeah yeah absolutely diversified geograph geographically
All right, so now I want to take us into real deep dive on how you think about Europe because, you know, you being global, I think it's very interesting. We've obviously, given Davis and my relationship, we often, you know, bring in Isomer for, for, for conversations. Mm -hmm. We're sure. trying to shed light on what's happening in Europe and how they think about Europe because it's, it's you know, they're right next door for us. So we'll just yeah. reach out and say, Joe, tell us a bit about how you think about XYZ, right? But now we have you and you're a global investor. So you're really seeing, okay, should I do a, a US you know, fund now or should I do a European one? So you're used to more contradict or juxtaposing those two regions. Tell us how do you see Europe in the grand scheme of things? No, I mean, Europe is a huge market. Uh, it's sort of a, you know, there's a huge amount of talent, a lot of technology. Um, there's 450 million people in the EU alone, which is larger by number of people. Uh, in the U.S. market, and it's uh, and it's underserved, right? I mean, if you look at the U.S., it's insanely competitive. Yes, you have more sort of big outcomes, yeah. you tend to have higher valuations, and obviously not more, many more unicorns uh, generated. Um, but it's also hugely competitive. So I always believe in the saying, "There's no free lunch." Mm. So you know, even if there are few opportunities, if it's chased by less capital or by fewer market participants, and um, that's great. I mean, there's a few things that are specific. Uh, about Europe, it's uh, you know it's it's a, it's a good market. It's also a very heavily regulated market. Uh, you have GDP, uh, GDPR, SFPR, uh, and labor laws and all that sort of thing yeah. to navigate. And it's funny, right? Now you mentioned GDPR, right? I don't think when we all thought about GDPR becoming a bit of a, an innovation issue, mm -hmm. twelve months ago, eighteen months ago, twenty-four months ago. No one was thinking about AI, how it would be impacting AI, right? And now I think, oh, that's mind-blowing to think about, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry for... Yeah, not, not at all. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of frictions uh, in the European market uh, to navigate. But, um, no, I think European VC opportunity is, is fantastic. And yeah. you can see that a lot of... So I just went to a conference here and there's a lot of US LPs. So they're clearly taking a look at yeah. European funds. There's a lot. There's a few, not so many actually. But I see, you know, in terms of deals done, a lot of U.S. funds yeah. doing chasing deals in Europe. Um, so the opportunity is definitely there. If you compare U.S. first-time funds and European first-time funds, what's the main difference? Are there better, better storytellers? Are there better fundraisers? Definitely. Are there better networkers? Do they bring something to the table which European emerging fund managers have to learn, copy, and kind of like? Uh, indoctrinate in order to, yeah. to be better managers per se. Yeah. I mean, the storytelling part of it is huge. I think it's just generally uh, you know, one of the key success factors in yeah. life. And uh, you and I, we are, grew up and went to school in Germany. You don't get taught uh, storytelling in Germany, whereas in the US you do. And even the UK, right? You have debating societies and stuff like that. So that's something where the German educational sure. system could, uh, could invest. No, and I think almost that one of the hardest things I, <laughs> I could imagine in being a global fund investor is going from a U.S. fund manager call that yeah. just pitched you and then going into a German deep tech guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a very different experience. I agree. Yes. I agree. Yeah. It's like, how can it, it's very hard not to just run with your emotions and then say, oh, obviously, it's the U.S. guy. Yeah. Is it as well a matter of experience and sophistication in terms of a very mature ecosystem like in the US? Like, let's mm -hmm. not only look at Silicon Valley, but generally in the US compared to Europe, we're like 10 years behind. Mm -hmm. We don't have the experience. You don't have the people who bring like 10-year track record mm -hmm. in, in venture capital. Is that a factor as well? 
just looking at emergent fund managers? Yeah, I mean, in terms of collective experience, I think the U.S. is ahead, although that uh, gap is being shortened, and I'll tell you why. But, you know, the U.S. has been starting doing VC in the, whatever, 60s and 70s in Europe, you know, in the late 90s, potentially. So Europe is 20 years behind in that, and sort of collective memory does feed through. Having said that, now we have this lovely thing called Twitter. And no, but in terms <laughs> yeah, of learning about venture capital, it's a great, great resource because a lot of people are sort of building their personal brand by pushing out content, and that comes from the US. So if you follow a lot of relevant people in the US, you can learn from them via, you know, via Twitter. So that's why I think the gap is becoming uh, smaller. Um, real good opportunity to, to catch up for European VCs. It's amazing that you take such concentrated bets. Kudos to you on that. I think that's 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 ballsy. <laughs> but how do you think about then? Do you say okay? So you mentioned early bird just before. Do you say well? Okay, then I don't know, east or west or both. <laughs> but um, but do you then say they, they they cover that region for me? I'm not going to do another fund there. No, I don't say that. I mean, uh, as I said, so I already mentioned we invested in early bird, east yeah. and west. Yeah. And as I said. Uh, super successful, yeah. I think we're the one, one of the most successful firms out there uh, in Europe. So that's maybe my shout out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, but uh, so if you look at you know, speaking openly, Early Bird Digital East, it's the elephant in Eastern Europe. They've done yeah. extremely well. I yeah. believe Early Bird One is the best performing fund in Europe ever, Digital East. But yeah, it's a $200 million fund, and a $200 million fund is harder to return uh, multiple times over than a $30 or $50 million fund. So we sort of run parallel strategies. So we are actually actively looking for uh, sort of new relationships uh, of smaller funds in Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, it's always good not to put uh, sort of all eggs in one basket. So yeah. Yeah, to answer your question, we are looking for new relationships there too. Yeah. Is there a particular tree you're looking for when you look at funds, whether it's like you're looking at thematic funds or thesis-driven funds or funds which do entry and follow-on investments, something where you say it's literally mandatory for us to have that before we consider to invest? Aside, of course, great team. So to have what exactly? Like, are you looking for a specific treat which you like to see in every fund where you would put like an MP ticket? Aside of, you know, a great team, track record, and everything they have to bring to the table, which is rather hygiene factors. Um, well, they have to be able to tell stories to become your earlier, earlier point. Yeah. But um, no, I think the, the key is even in Europe, as I said, it's less competitive in the US, but it is still competitive, there's no yeah. doubt. Um, so you re really need to differentiate, be something to someone, not everything to everyone. Um, and you need to sort of build a, a great brand behind that. Um, so yeah, to be very clear about what you're doing, sort of stick to your guns stuff, um, and you know, not be optimistic. Um, that's a key, key trait. You mentioned one of the challenges for Europe being, of course, that we are 20 years behind in terms of, well, we're not anymore, but we started 20 years later. Do you see any other challenges specific to the European ecosystem? Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, re regulation, then obviously, you know, it's sort of uh, hard to internationalize even within Europe. I mean, uh, you know, between Germany and France and, and the UK and Italy, yeah. you know, all great, great uh, places, but, um, you know, very different culturally, yeah. different linguistically. Yeah. So, yeah, the luxury that the US has that they have a huge, yeah. proper unified market. That's not the case in Europe. How about discipline and portfolio construction? Do you see us being, you know... Getting a lot better. So I yeah. think uh, Twitter helped a lot for to, uh, raise people's awareness about the huge, huge importance of portfolio construction. Yeah. So portfolio construction is basically how we verify yeah. that, you know, a fund can, has the potential to deliver that three yeah. to five X. <clears throat> so there's many different strategies. Um, you know, you can sort of 
uh, go for maximal uh, optionality early on, do a lot of sort of small tickets, and then sort of hope to buy up, up as in increase uh, ownership at a later stage. Great concept in principle, but very hard to pull off in practice, as, as we all know. Uh, rounds in, in uh, companies that grow fast become incredibly competitive, but I have seen people pull that off, GPs pull that off systematically. So it is possible, but then you need to prove to me that you have been able to do that in the past, like yeah. increase ownership over time, later uh, further down um, in, in your winners. Or, you know, the other alternative is to maximize uh, ownership on the first, first check, have a little bit in reserve to basically protect your ownership uh, in the winners. So, yeah, portfolio construction is, is usually important to us. Okay, so now I want to go to your three core learnings in LP investing. I'm curious to hear, what is your take there? Key learnings in LP investing. Um, so, I mean, venture capital, you know, is, is a difficult asset class uh, to make money in. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone sort of sees the uh, glitter of, you know, sort of individual deals which return 100x, etc. But to actually yeah. hit one of those is, you know, even statistically uh, very, very hard. So it's very important to sort of have, you know, sort of a systematic, disciplined, um, approach, have a clear differentiator, a clear value add, a clear edge. Yeah, and basically sort of be disciplined in executing that. Yeah. Uh, you may get lucky early. I think it's actually very uh, dangerous to become lucky uh, too early because you can be exceptionally good. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's better to have a sort of uh, few early learnings and then uh, you know, sort of improve your chances of having uh, that lucky outlier later on. But luck, let's be honest, uh, plays a huge role in venture yeah. capital. Yeah, but as, as, as I said, the real pros who systematically make uh, outsides or generate outsides return in venture capital. And they're yeah. clearly doing something right. And uh, yeah, we try to find those people and back them. Now I'd love to take us to our quick fire round. Are you sure. ready for that? I am. <laughs> <laughs> and now, the quick fire I would love to ask you the first question, which is what advice would you give to your own 10 year younger self? I mean, you know, the world we live in, it's incredibly hectic and fast paced. And, you know, you know, I think it actually got worse during COVID, like, you know, where you have back to back calls and sort of no breaks in between um, and you get sucked into it. Right. And then the risk becomes you come too bogged down in the detail and sort of miss the bigger picture on the way or lose the bigger picture on the way. So I think it's hugely important to just stay, take a step back once in a while and generally just slow everything down, right? I mean, everything always seems time critical. Um, it's also sometimes a legitimate strategy to sit things out and some problems go away just by sitting them out. Um, so generally sort of reduce the pace, uh, take, a, take a step back, you know, it improves the outcomes generally. So now, second question, and that is, what is your, what are your top tips for emerging managers that are fundraising? For fundraising, so as I said earlier, it's enormously important, and this is really a message you need to convey in the first three minutes of any conversation, or put it right up front, in your, and put it right up front in your pitch deck. What makes you different, right? Like any fund of funds, and most you know, investors in VC, you see hundreds, if not thousands, yeah, probably not thousands of funds, but hundreds a year, hundreds of new ones a year year and you know the, more, the longer you do it you sort of filter through you know more efficiently and you're looking for that or lps are looking for that what makes you different why should i spend more time um you know sort of uh, evaluating the opportunity so that's the message to uh, 
that's really important. Um, the other thing is, you know, sales, you know, most, that's what most VCs teach their company is a process, right? Um, and you need to have a process, you need to have a CRM, you need to figure out also different LP types. And, you know, you should ask your LPs, what, what's a good cadence to sort of follow up? What information's, you know, even if you say not now, but maybe for your next fund, what information may I provide you with? And, you know, sort of cater, cater to that. So run a real process. Uh, venture capital, of course, has put, put this way, the GPLP relationship is not transactional. It's exactly that relationship. It's a very long-term relationship. Those cycles in venture are very long, as we all know. So invest in a relationship. And even, <clears throat> so my advice to some, you know, VPs say, become very disappointed if you don't say yes after, after two months or something like that. Even if you've done the work, right? Because you do obviously your desktop-based work and you do your Q&A, et cetera. But you just might need a few more months to become comfortable with the relationship. So be patient. And even a rejection is rarely sometimes this, sometimes this, but it doesn't mean it's a rejection forever. I mean, not ready for this fund. Let's talk again um, for the next one. So um, be patient and, and don't be uh, transactional about it. And now the final question is, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started in venture? As I said earlier, I think uh, there's a sort of misleading allure to uh, venture capital that it's an easy, uh, easy asset class uh, to, to make money, right? To make a quick buck, uh, so to speak. And that, that is uh, absolutely not the case. It's a real grind. And, uh, you know, if you invest in private equity, for instance, you know, you diversify a little bit, you see with the big names, you'll make what you want, but it's a 2x, you get your money back a lot quicker. Um, then in venture, you take, you know, very little risk if you diversify a little bit. Um, so that's a sort of pretty, pretty solid, pretty reliable thing. Venture capital, it's, it's not like that. You can't index, in my opinion, these are different opinions, you can't index venture capital because if you look at, you know, if US venture capital, 30, 40 year returns, low single digits. You know, nothing wrong with low single digits, but then I don't need that sort of risk profile and I definitely don't need that illiquidity profile. <clears throat> so not a good reason. But obviously, clearly someone is making money and but you need to really sort of uh, yeah. find those people and you know, sometimes it become very hard to access. I actually, there's the days where you just rock up with a check and you know, everyone is singing and dancing. You know, might be the experience for many, but um, the really best funds are to spend a lot of time to persuade the GPs to give me a small allocation. So. <laughs> awesome, amazing. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you, Mark, for hosting us. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem. requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.